This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. Last year was 2.2% of all venture capital went to women-only led firms. I mean, this is 2021. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Businesswoman and philanthropist Jean Case joined the Smart Women, Smart Power Speaker Series to talk about redefining capitalism. Currently, she's CEO of the Case Impact Network and chairman of the board of National Geographic. We talked about Capitalism 2.0, impact investing, and how companies that do good are doing better when it comes to their bottom line. The Smart Women, Smart Power Speaker Series is sponsored by City. Let's jump right in. I want to ask about redefining capitalism or capitalism 2.0, which is what you've called it. Uh, you've written about this. You've spoken about this. So what does redefining capitalism mean and how do you do it? Yeah, you know, it's there are a lot of terms being thrown around using the word capitalism 2.0, new capitalism. You, you name several of them as well. Bottom line is that can all sound really complicated, but at its heart is a very simple sort of forward-looking idea. And that is how can we make capitalism work for more people in more places? You know, I think the last year has really taught us, you know, across society, certainly here in the United States, we have many pockets where capitalism can do a better job of meeting the needs. And I think that's really the focus of new capitalism. I have to ask this question just because of the tenor of the times when you say redefining capitalism or capitalism 2.0. I think that might have the potential to scare folks who think if it's not capitalism, it's got to be some form of socialism or something that is not what we normally think about in terms of American capitalism. Can you address that? Sure, be happy to. And, you know, that fear is very real because I think what we saw, particularly as the election played out in 2020, we saw voices calling for abandoning capitalism as a system, right? So I think in this idea of a reimagined capitalism, it is just that it's naming and claiming that it's been the most successful system on the planet for lifting people up and bringing opportunities. But like everything, it can probably use a refresh. And, you know, I am chairman of National Geographic. It's 133 years old. It turns out that we've actually changed a lot in that 133 years. And we are constantly going back to the table saying, what do we need to reimagine? How can we do better in places? And essentially, these efforts to refine capitalism are that. And so redefining capitalism, let's talk a little bit more about how you how you do that. How do you make it more inclusive of people who perhaps haven't always had the opportunity to fully participate? I read one article that you that you wrote where uh, I'm just going to pull the statistics here because very few women, very few people of color actually get venture capital money that is used to start up companies and help people be entrepreneurs. So how do you do that? Sure, sure. Well, you know, it's a big subject and we could probably take all <laughs> part of just answering that one question. But I think what we're talking about here, another term being used is stakeholder capitalism. And the reason for that is, you know, we are finding that companies who value their stakeholders 
not just their shareholders, their stakeholders, that would include employees, that would include you know, the environment, that would include the supply chain, and that would include their customers. Companies that optimize for those and really pay attention to their stakeholders more broadly tend to outperform. There have been several studies, even in recent years, that show that. Um, so, you know, that's really what we're talking about there. On the investment front, which is a little different than sort of the big company issue, on the investment front, it's not just that not very many women. Let me tell you the data. Last year was 2.2% of all venture capital went to women-only-led firms. I mean, this is 2021, 2.2%, Beverly. So it won't wow. take much to think about, you know, really significantly increasing that. And I do think we've seen some moves. You know, City just mentioned some of the things they're doing. We're seeing that with other big banks as well. Um, people of color, African-Americans, less than 1% of venture capital. But it's also an issue of a divide in America, depending on your zip code, to be honest with you, because last year, 75% of venture capital went to just three places, New York, California, and Massachusetts, leaving the other 47 states to fight over what was left, and most of them getting less than 1% of the pie. So we really do have these divides right now in terms of you know, who's getting the jobs, who's getting the investment. And it's an opportunity for us to say, okay, no one really feels good about that. How can we make a difference now? Uh -huh. And you've written about companies that actually do uh, the work of being more inclusive or doing quote unquote good also yeah. do better. And you just mentioned that, that, that statistics back that up. Um, how does doing good help profitability? Yeah. Well, I sort of, you know, when you think of doing good, you think of do-gooder, and immediately your mind goes to philanthropy or to nonprofits. That's really not the point of stakeholder capitalism. The point of stakeholder capitalism is to say, fundamentally, can you as a business look at the needs and the opportunities that exist across your stakeholders and change the way that you're doing business. So right now, for instance, and you know, I was just on a CEO roundtable last week where the discussion was women leaving the workforce, and I've written about this as well. And many Americans are not aware that we've likely lost more than 2 million women from the workforce in the last year. And the real sort of bummer about that is when 2020 started, it was the first year that women represented the majority of our workforce. So we should all be concerned about these losses. In September alone, as school was starting up, and women with children, I'm sure, were feeling like, I just can't do it all. You know, they're home and I'm supposed to work. And, um, you know, we lost 865,000 women in September alone. So the signals are there that some of our stakeholders, which include women, you know, in our workforce, uh, have some special needs. And the smart companies are really starting to pay close attention to this and trying to do what they can, you know, to bring relief or to adapt their policies. Let me pull the string on that uh, because women are have lost so many jobs during the COVID-19 pandemic. And the question becomes, A, how do you get the women who did have to leave the workforce in order to either care for their children or for their elderly parents or elderly relatives, how do you get them back in the workforce um, and make it easier for them to return to the workforce? Or how do you, I've also read, how do you get women who felt like they had to take a step back. They may have stayed in the workforce, but they may have taken a step back or not gone for the promotion to a higher position 
because of all the other responsibilities they've been juggling because of the pandemic. How should businesses be looking at this? Because as you mentioned, that's a that's an incredible number of people to lose from the workforce. Yeah, no question. And quite frankly, you know, it was kind of at one level a sweet thing and another level a maddening thing to see as, you know, we went into quarantine how many men began working from home and got exposed to what it means to be, you know, part of that day-to-day action in the house and all the things that needed to get done. And, you know, there were some CEOs, male CEOs, honest enough to say, I had no idea, right? And you kind of go, really? (laughs) If they have an idea now, we've got something to work with. And they do. As I said, this roundtable that I was on, you know, the ideas are everything, Beverly, from more flexible policies um, to, you know, I think it was Fidelity um, who put in place childcare consultants because another thing that happened was childcare dried up, you know, during quarantine. You know, nannies didn't come to work, daycare closed, et cetera. So right down to very practical things like that, some of the things we did at National Geographic um, were really doing what I call deep listening and asking our teams, what do you need for us to support you at home? And one of the things we heard was, if you could schedule our Zoom hours and schedule breaks and then no Zoom hours, that would let us trade responsibilities a little easier in the house. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so it was something that practical. But I do think it has to start with deep listening, and hopefully it's followed by deep understanding that then lets you look at, okay, well, what are some ways we can address these issues? And pulling a little bit farther on that thread, um, is this going to change the way businesses have to operate and have to think of their employees? There's a lot of talk right now about businesses having trouble, or at least some sectors uh, of business, having trouble finding people to come back to work now that things in the United States are beginning to reopen. Um, And the political dynamic has been to say, well, people are getting more money on unemployment than they would if they went and got a job. And I'm wondering if there's not something else going on that that's actually not true. People have had 16 months to reevaluate their lives and think about what they actually want to do. And are some of the people who maybe are not going back to jobs they had before thinking, okay, maybe I need to reskill, maybe I need to upskill, and and maybe they've taken time to do that and they're fine, you know, they're looking for something different to do. Yeah, I think it's a really important question. I will say that, you know, we did launch the Case Impact Network last January, just before quarantine. And And I I do want to follow up on what that was like. (laughs) um, I had a really interesting experience. I'd committed myself to talk to 100 leaders on stakeholder capitalism, just to ground myself, many of them corporate CEOs. And so as I was doing these calls pre-pandemic, I would hear a very similar thing. Yes, you know, there's real power in that. I think there's momentum there. Remember the business roundtable, you might recall Beverly in 2019 had those 178 companies sign on to stakeholder capitalism and it was kind of a follow-up to that. What I heard was, yes, it's great, but if there is like a bump in the economy, everybody's gonna run away from it and we're just gonna go back to business as usual. But in fact, if you watched carefully what happened last year, businesses had no choice but to take care of their stakeholders. If they weren't taking care of their employees, they didn't have employees to keep their you know, companies running or you know, cash register or whatever. Um, if they hadn't taken care of their supply chain, they found themselves last in line for that precious toilet paper. I mean, in very sort of real practical ways, it started coming home to roost, even their customers. 
if they couldn't provide a safe you know, environment for their customers, they would lose customers. So in some ways, 2020 may have done more to advance stakeholder capitalism than if it had been business as usual. And now I think what we're seeing is companies who weren't particularly employee first are having trouble now. Their employees are leaving, they're having trouble getting their employees back, et cetera. Um, Just Capital did a study and they said that companies that prioritize the workforce outperform financially. And I think we're gonna see that play out here. Which goes back to your earlier point about taking the time to invest in the people right. that work that work for you. Right. Um, I want to jump back to the to the redefining capitalism, capitalism 2.0, and stakeholder capital uh, to ask the question about businesses. You know, the focus is always on the bottom line, on those quarterly yeah. quarterly statements, um, uh, and that's short term. Is in, would you say that it's fair to call impact investing and the cap redefining of capitalism looking at the longer at, at what's good in the long term that may not give you the big profit tomorrow, but might give you an even larger profit six months, 10 months, a year, even two years from now? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in this space, we talk about ESG, right? And those three factors. And, you know, I do think it's recognized as more of a long-term focus. But what I will say is it's not really what I think. We could maybe refer to the world's largest asset manager, right? Larry Fink at BlackRock. Trillions and trillions of dollars under management. Um, there, In the last couple of years, there's been no bigger champion of long-termism than Larry Fink. Now, why would Larry Fink, you know, really kind of investor that he is, think it's okay to compromise short term for long term? Because he has seen the companies that put a focus on the longer term and pay attention to longer term issues. They have, you know, they do a better job of mitigating their long term risks and they outperform. So it's a little bit counterintuitive, right? And I know the argument that yes, there is some short term, but I think the market is smart enough to understand how to judge both risk and opportunity. And when you pay attention to ESG factors, that balance gets, I, I would say, maybe closer to righted for the companies that are doing that. And we're seeing and that in, in, in performance. And for those who may not know exactly what ESGs mean, it's environmental, social, and governance factors. Right. Can you can you delve a little bit more about into about how companies invest in those three areas uh, and how that relates to overall impact investing? Yeah, again, we could spend all of our time <laughs> on that. Um, but you know, I think like let's think about environmental for a minute, right? Really, investors at the end of the day are trying to measure the risk of an investment, if it's an investment into a company, for instance. So let's say you're an insurance company, and let's say you really haven't paid much attention to climate change, for instance. You haven't you know, factored that in. Well, if you look at what's happened in our planet in recent years, there have been untold numbers, natural disasters, wildfire. You know, insurance costs have gone up. And then that has sort of a, a, a wave effect, if you will, throughout the economy. And so it really is a matter of looking at how your personal business is being impacted by environmental factors. You know, we were in Miami during a very rainy time last year, and, you know, there was water in the streets of Miami. Businesses that aren't thinking about their physical locations, what they're doing in the event of disasters, planning ahead, reducing their carbon footprint, 
they're not going to be winners in the long run. And, and, you know, I think it's taking time for people to catch up, but I think that's really getting recognized. And again, the performance that follows is being recognized as better. And we have a question from the audience uh, related to this and from Viable Visions Consulting asks, how does investing in the good relate to the ESG investment criteria and are they, are they sufficient? Are there other issues that should be on the table when we talk about this? Yeah, there's no question there should be other issues. You know, we try to capture a lot of them under those three terms, which, you know, that term was created or those three letters were put together some time ago, but they're very you know, different and distinct from one another. Of course, under S comes a lot of the diversity, equity, and inclusion that I think, you know, has really come front and center in the last year. Under the G is governance, and that really matters because if you want to change the system, particularly for a public company, you need shareholder rights. And a company that doesn't let their shareholders influence their action is not being very transparent. It's like it takes the democracy out of sort of public markets. Uh-huh. Um, what about uh, the thought of millennials? And it, we talk about different groups and how they impact the business sector. And I know that you have uh, at the Case Foundation and the Case Impact Network, you have you have paid a lot of attention to this group because I think if I'm remembering my stats right, they're next to the baby boomers. They're that next biggest they bubble are. Of 73 million strong, right? Yes. And they pay attention to ESGs and the things that companies do that maybe might not be on everybody else's radar. And they take those actions into consideration when they're deciding where they want to spend their money. And that's a whole lot of people. Yes, you know. it is, Beverly. And one thing that is easy to forget is these are not super young people in all cases today. Millennials right. roughly are early 20s to you know early 40s, okay? So they have tremendous economic power now. They're the largest workforce in the nation, just you know, for an example. And we find that millennials and women, two demographic shifts that are taking place dramatically from an economic standpoint, um, you know, are really taking their roots as conscious consumers, which we've all recognized they are, right? They they really think about the products they buy, the services, et cetera. And they're using that to become conscious investors. Mm -hmm. And it really is, you know, we did a 10-year study of millennials, largest in the nation, of millennials and their attitudes towards social good. And very early on, we saw this generation think, I'll take a pay cut to go to work for a company that's a better corporate citizen. You know, they, they really were, I will pay more for a product if I know, you know, better things have happened in the making of that product. Um, so they've really kind of shown those roots from the beginning and women as well. So it's really a tectonic shift that's happening. The economic power, some, some estimate 40 to 50 trillion of wealth transfer will go to those two segments. And those that are advising them on investments today are a little frightened because if they're not up to speed on ESG, if they don't have things to offer that really, you know, sort of meet the needs of this new class of investors, I think they're they're not going to have the account much longer. <laughs> and and companies, I would assume, are taking note of this. Or you tell me, how are companies responding? No question. I think what we're hearing companies say, and again, I've been kind of living in CEO roundtables and talking to a lot, you know, they see their companies as their employees, the smart, the smart leaders do. 
Um, and I think they recognize that if they want to both attract and retain the best and the brightest, they're going to have to listen carefully, going back to that deep listening, and really be the kind of corporate citizen that this generation wants. Uh -huh. and we, uh, we have another question from the audience. Um, Pauline from Thomson Reuters West Westlaw says, um, there are American women living abroad who need to be recognized and included. What can you do to enable them to continue to work post-COVID and into the future? That raises a really interesting point. Yeah, it does. I will say on this ESG, stakeholder capitalism, impact investing, you know, all these terms, uh, I think Europe's a little ahead of us, by the way. So if some, How so? Uh, well, we were seeing moves and even much further in terms of regulatory, just given the nature of Europe and how uh, how sort of regulation works there with business. Um, but we're seeing, you know, I'm talking, you know, several years ago, some countries were dictating women on boards, okay, requiring women on boards. Um, so Europe's a little ahead of us on this front, but I think that, you know, the U.S., is waking up in a powerful way and our our change might come a little more slowly but i think when it happens it's going to be a kind of hockey stick so i do feel for women around the world and you know it's really going to depend on where around the world but i will say if it's in europe they could actually you know be in a much better place in some cases in some of the communities in the united states just right now mm -hmm. and i think you're referring to wasn't there something called the 30 percent club Absolutely, um, Beverly. Yes, European yes. companies that yes. they needed to have thirty percent women on their on their. Yeah, they're also boards. much more aggressive on climate regulation. I mean, we could go right down the line. And look, I don't want to get into politics here. I'm simply making the point that because Europe has regulated much of this, they're a little bit advanced in making progress on some of these fronts in companies across Europe. And I promise to circle back on starting up a new operation uh, as a pandemic took yeah. off. What was that like? Yeah. So, you know, it's been interesting. And then I'll, I'll add to that just a little, because uh, I think, you know, maybe the women in your audience would be interested. We brought a new CEO into National Geographic in August of 2020. Oh, so wow. I was over there last week, and it was the first time she was meeting the people who've been working for her since August. Can you imagine that? But um, I know she would say, and I feel this way too, you know, I think that, uh, and, you know, I remember we talked about my book, Be Fearless, and one of the principles there is let urgency conquer fear. And I think if you were trying to take on any big thing in this last year, whether it be an opportunity you're chasing or a challenge you're trying to address, there was definitely that sense of urgency in the air, right? Um, and so I think that that played a role really in helping try new things, getting innovative in ways you might not have in a more comfortable situation, et cetera. And I'm seeing this across companies, by the way, including you know our own effort here at uh, Case Impact Network, is just we didn't really have a choice. We had to figure out how are we going to get this done. And I think some of the things that we've done, as well as what we've seen with other companies, will endure because they're just better ways of doing business in some cases. And you mentioned your book, and we did a fabulous podcast on on that uh, when it came out, on it when it came out. Uh, and I will pull the thread a little bit farther and ask you a couple of questions about that because it's related to where we find ourselves right now. Um, you talk about nothing great comes from the comfort zone, and I think it's 
probably the understatement of the of the year to say that the previous 12 to 16 months have not been comfortable for pretty much anybody. Um, uh, how, it, what advice would you give to people who are, you know, as we're coming out of the pandemic and as things are slowly coming back to either a normal or, an, or a new normal, and as you think about what am I, you know, where am I going to put my energy and yeah. for companies, where am I going to make my investments? What advice would you give to them that potentially gets them out of their comfort zone to do something else that you said um, uh, about uh, leave, giving up a good thing for something that's even better or something that is even, that is greater? If, if that question made sense. Yeah. Afraid to give up a good thing in pursuit of a great thing. Okay. That's a very, very common trend. Um, and, you know, I've spoken about that a lot, just going back to my AOL days, when we were trying to convince people to come to this sort of unknown startup. They didn't want to take the risk. And then years later, I'd hear from them with such regret because they really weren't willing to give up a good thing for a great thing. Um, but today, I think there's some of that. The other thing is you alluded to this in your earlier question about why, you know, some people are saying they're not going back to work now or they're going to switch careers or whatever. I think people have done some very deep reflection through this time, asking sort of the big questions of life. And I think in some cases, you know, many ha do have big ideas. They have a big idea about a career trajectory or a big idea about starting a business or a big idea about solving a problem, you name it. Um, and this just might be the moment because it really is moments like this where people dig deep and they can sometimes use that sort of sense of urgency that's, you know, been brewing in them to push past the comfort zone and really, you know, take some risks. And in the book, if you remember Beverly, you know, I talk about the first question, if, I, if, if we were together, you know, physically, I just know a hand would shoot up now and say, but what's the difference between measured and reckless risk? Because right. that's usually what we're all asking ourselves when we're mm -hmm. trying to step out there, but we're not sure it's right. And I put several sort of tools and tips in the book to kind of assess your own risk taking and a decision you might have. And I, I recommend some work of others that can help that as well. Uh-huh. Uh, Kristen Lord, uh, the president and CEO of IREX or I-R-E-X um, has the, I'm sorry if I mispronounced the name of the organization, of the, of the company. Uh, are there resources and training available for small companies and entrepreneurs who would like to have a greater ESG focus, but don't have the ability to hire someone who's dedicated or hire a dedicated staff to work on this or have a whole unit uh, devoted to ESG? Because there are a lot of companies right now who have complete ESG units within right. their business. Right. And I would say really to anyone running a business out there or thinking about how you can align your organization to sort of ESG factors, you're really smart if you're doing it now. Uh, companies that aren't doing that now are getting behind the eight ball because everybody cares. And if you're a small company and you want to be a bigger company, at some point you're going to need an infusion of capital and they will ask these questions. What I would refer folks to is a couple things. Morningstar has some excellent resources on their website for ESG. Um, some of the, there are some uh, measurements, uh, measurement uh, firms, if you will, that are specifically ESG focused. Um, one is MSCI is a leader there. You can go to MSCI.com and you'll find a lot of ESG sort of intro measurement frameworks, et cetera. And the other is called Sustainalytics. So I would check out those three websites as a start. 
And while we're chatting on on this, I just have to ask about. I'm sure there are people who are skeptical oh, yeah. uh, about the uh, about ESGs, about impact investing, yeah. about investing for good. What does it take to convince them? Because I I remember reading in one of your articles you quoted from 1970s Milton Friedman who said, you know, it. it social responsibility is not the role of business, yeah. but what I'm hearing you say is that business does have a role in social responsibility. There's so no question. Business in its fundamental role as a business should take responsibility for society more broadly. The best news here that I can give is that those that are are outperforming right now. I mean, we see this time and time again. And, and you know, whether it's Deloitte, McKinsey, we could go right, you know, BS, uh, BCG, we could go right down the line. So there's tons of data to suggest that this is smart. But, you know, Beverly, we need skeptics. It keeps us on our toes, right? And, has to make, and we make sure we're not sort of drinking the Kool-Aid, if you will, right? We should be pushed. Every time we try to make a little shift in our economy or in our economic system, we need to be careful that we're doing it right. You know, mm-hmm. and so we tend to let data drive, uh, you know, are we on the right track? Are we not on the right track? And so far, the data really seems to indicate that this is a good path forward. So what going back to your book, what would you make a big bet on right now? Yeah, I would make a big bet on the fact that probably no more than 10 years could be. I don't know. That might be a little optimistic, but somewhere in the next decade or two. We're not going to be talking about this as a distinct thing from business. This is going to be business as we know it. The power of this next generation and women combined to reshape our economic system so it works better for more people in more places, that is going to happen. And smart leaders and the smart businesses are getting on that train and they're already starting to move. And for those who might be worried about failure, which is something else that you write about a, a lot, specifically as it as it relates to this topic, um, what do you say to to people who are worried about? Okay, I've I've been successful. What I'm doing is successful. Um, if I pivot to do more of what you're speaking about, there you know there there is a risk of failure. How do you address that? Yeah, well, you know, failure and. Fear of failure can be a paralyzing thing if you're not careful. Um, What I did in my book was really focused on a number of people who had broken through, and we mostly know their successes, and we don't know all the failures along the way. You know, Albert Einstein said, failure is success in progress. Thomas Edison said, I haven't failed. I've just found 10,000 things that won't work. You know, if we could begin to embrace that failure like R&D sometimes Mm -hmm. is necessary to help us get better and perfect what it is we're aiming for. I think the key is understanding at your stage in life and the decision you're facing, whether you can chunk down the big ideas so that if failures happen, it doesn't sort of put you out of business literally. You can you know, stand up, rush off, learn those lessons and keep going. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to talk about your other role, other than being the CEO of the Case Impact Network and CEO of the Case Foundation, um, you're chairman of the board at National Geographic. And as I mentioned earlier, the first woman to have that have that role. Um, when we were talking about uh, uh, National Geographic, you mentioned it's 133 years old and, you know, you've had to change over 
yeah. over time, obviously. Um, but can you talk about what you're doing now and how you're recruiting more women as National Geographic explorers, more entrepreneurs, um, people from geographically diverse locations? Can you talk more about the, the work that you're doing there? Sure. Well, you know, it's funny because when I became chairman, I'd been on the board for quite a number of years. And when I became chairman, you know, we do this annual thing called the Explorer Symposium. And we say they're coming home to our base camp, which is right here in Washington, D.C., not too far from your office, Beverly. And um, it's a great time to spend with explorers, et cetera. But the year I became chairman, you know, I worked with the CEO and said, gosh, the Explorer class doesn't look like the world. And if we're really telling the stories of the world, they need to be told from people around the world who look like others in the world. Um, so at that time, I think we had 80% men in that class and a very limited number of explorers from other countries. Um, today, our uh, explorer class is 51% women. They represent like 80 countries from around the world. And they do include, uh, as you say, some entrepreneurs, because we have come to realize that business can be, as we've said through this whole conversation, a powerful force for good. So there are startups across America and really around the world that are addressing some you know, real challenges that are mission aligned with what we're focused on. So we don't just want the scientists and the explorers, we also want you know, the great thinkers who are standing up businesses that can address the great challenges of our time. And I know you're from Kentucky, Beverly, and one of the, one example, and this is not about National Geographic, this is just an investment. One example is a company called App Harvest, which mm -hmm. some of you may have heard of, uh, but they're really kind of reimagining how we grow food. So they have a very, very large greenhouse that they built out of what was previous coal country, okay? It's so large, it has almost a million tomato plants in it. In growing, they can grow 365 days a year. They use 90% less water than traditional farming does because they use a rainwater capture mm -hmm. system. They get 30 times the yield that the average acre would be able to get. And here's the best thing. He really put it there, the founder put it there because that is within driving distance 24 hours to 80% of the US population. That means instead of trucks hauling across the nation's highways for days at a time to bring fruits and vegetables, we can get fresher produce, you know, grown more recently, you know, from, a, from an area closer to you within 24 hours. So the carbon footprint is dramatically reduced. So to me, that is a great example of business for good. They're looking at, you know, the environment, they're considering the place and going to Kentucky. I mean, it's just a great story everywhere that you turn. We're really excited for that company. And that makes me think that there's a direct connection between what you're working on at Natural, National Geographic and ESGs for business. Oh, that absolutely. Sounds, no the, the story you just described sounds like a, a, a perfect combination. You see, you see the science, you see what can be done, and then someone's created a business. Yeah, but Warby Parker's like that too. If you look at Warby, I mean, they've been an impact company from their founding. Um, and those founders have, I think, as much passion and commitment toward their mission of, you know, really trying to help the world have access to, uh, you know, correction of, you know, for people who need glasses as they do for just being the hottest retail brand in eyewear. Uh -huh. And and just thinking about that type of innovation, how do you how do you encourage it, or is it something that just kind of 
follows naturally uh, of, you know, you see something that you're working on or you have the entrepreneurs who are the Nat Geo explorers. And how often does that actually lead to an innovative idea that could potentially become a business? Well, here I really want to talk directly to those joining us today, because the most common thing I hear is I could never be an entrepreneur. And I say, oh, really? Do you know really what at the end of the day an entrepreneur does? solves problems. Mm -hmm. In most cases, what entrepreneurs do is they've lived a problem or they've witnessed a problem someone, you know, known to them has had, and they have an idea about how to solve it. You know, it was with Warby Parker, he had worked for a vision NGO in Africa. And so when he started Warby Parker, he thought, well, how can I integrate that work into what I'm doing and, and, and really solve for two things, a great business and giving people eyewear who otherwise couldn't afford it. You know, Jonathan at App Harvest, he just saw the challenges in Kentucky and he knew what he needed to do. So really anybody can be an entrepreneur because anybody can solve a problem. And my guess is many folks with us today have had moments where they've seen something and they say, gosh, somebody should do something about that or something should be done about that. And this is an idea. And it's like, well, maybe you're that somebody. I mean, that really is what it comes down to. And that leads back to when we were talking earlier about having people who invest, getting the venture capital money out of just New York, California, and Massachusetts into places, like other places <laughs> yeah, like Kentucky, like my home state, um, and, but other places around the country. Um, I, I think your husband works on something called the Rise of the Rust. He does. He has an investment fund that specifically seeks out the extraordinary talent and innovation we see between the coasts. And I like to remind you know, here again, skeptics, a lot of people will say, well, isn't all the talent on the coast? Most people don't know that in America, 70% of our Fortune 500 companies were started between the coasts. It's mm -hmm. actually the minority of companies that are in those places that we think houses all the talent. And there's no question Silicon Valley and New York have you know, tremendous talent, as does Boston too. But guess what? There's talent everywhere and it's largely untapped. But how do people in those places who may have these brilliant ideas, how do they convince the venture capitalists to invest in them? I see that as as part of part yeah. of the issue. You know, if you're it, you know, if you're if you've got a great idea, but you're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah in the middle of the country, and I don't mean that in a negative sense, I just mean that it's not in, a, it's not in the places where the venture capitalists are. Right, right. How do you get their attention? Yeah, well, so really the brilliance behind the rise of the rest, really it's an initiative. It is an investment fund, but it's a much broader mission than that. It's really to put a spotlight and bring investors to these places where they haven't been. And so the story of App Harvest that I told you, for instance, mm -hmm. even before they broke ground on the greenhouse, you know, the rise of the rest spotlighted them. 60, we called 60 Minutes, 60 Minutes did a segment on them. So, you know, really that work is not just about making an investment, but really trying to shine a big, bright light on what we believe is tremendous talent and innovation in places where people don't know it exists. You know, he has uh, co-investments by funds all around the nation where he's introducing them for the first time to these sort of non-obvious places to invest. Uh, and of course, during the quarantine, what we saw was a tremendous shift of population away from the coast into some of these places. And it'll be interesting to see how much of that sustains itself when everybody gets back to work. 
I want to remind all the folks who are watching us online, you can ask questions and uh, there is a link on our CSIS webpage uh, where you can submit a question uh, for Jean. Uh, please feel free to do that. Um, as as uh, we move forward in the in the conversation here, I want to ask you about leadership because that's something that you're doing and that you're pushing, you know, advocating for other women leaders. Uh, and um, I guess the, the question now as we come out of, well, I guess I shouldn't say come out of the pandemic, but as it lessens and we return to a new normal, um, what are you looking for in terms of, of leaders that you want to back, that you want to advocate for? Um, what are some of the qualities that you want to, to make sure that they have? Um, because as you've described here, there, there are lots of people with ideas, um, but maybe they just need to be discovered. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things I'm looking for is, you know, maybe a little bit of a hub and spoke. So one area that I'm invested in are leaders that are helping grow other leaders. So there's, for instance, a um, digital version of what we call an accelerator for entrepreneurs, um, where you know, they can be coached and brought along in terms of if they have a business idea. And you know, we discovered some number of years ago that the reason there weren't more women doing that is because they couldn't you know, go move somewhere for three months if they had all these you know, other responses. You could imagine all the reasons why. So this digital version was created. It's called Hello Alice. And today it represents more minority um, and female entrepreneurs than any network in the nation. 260,000 small business people are getting resources. So I really look for those opportunities. Who are the leaders that are growing even more leaders? That to me is very low hanging fruit, right? And Hello Alice is a great example. Started by a, a Latinx uh, and another uh, woman co-founder. Uh, and it's just been a tremendous network there. Um, but resilience, I would say Beverly, as we look back on this time, I think one of the things we're gonna note is that you know, some have more resilience, whether they be organizations or whether they be individuals. And I think resilience has to be a big part of the picture. But I think more and more science is pointing us to something that may be behind the stakeholder capitalism, which is empathy. You know, if you can't first listen and then maybe feel and understand, you, chances are you can't address the challenge or the opportunity, you know, to its fullest. So that's something we really look for. Do businesses or do companies lack empathy these days? I think I have been really surprised in these recent CEO roundtables. I've done just how empathetic, genuinely empathetic. And I think it comes a little bit from having been schooled in this last year, um, seeing things being you know, more closely, oddly, even though they're on a screen, having more employees, you hearing from them, et cetera. Um, so yeah, I feel pretty good that, that mm -hmm best leaders out there that we know are, are strong in empathy. Uh-huh. Well, this has been the most fascinating conversation that I have had in a long time and inspiring. Uh, Jean Case, thank you so much for being with us here uh, with Smart Women, Smart Power. It is always a pleasure to speak to you. And uh, for those watching, if you haven't read the book, Be Fearless, I highly recommend it. And uh, also check out uh, the Case Impact Network for all of the work that it is doing in impact investing. Jean, thank you so much. Thanks, Beverly, and thanks to everyone who joined us today. 
Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.